Hello and welcome to God's Word During Exile. Today is a sad day. We are without Mike Hussey because the Buffalo Bills lost and he is nursing his wounds. Youch. Let's just let... No, he's not feeling well because the Buffalo Bills lost <laughs> and he's nursing his wounds. Uh, so that's where we're going to leave that, but you can definitely be praying for Mike. Uh, he's, he's having some hardship right now. Because the Buffalo Bills lost in the playoffs. Uh, but let's move past that because I'm sure as he's loading this, uh, hopefully he loaded this to Facebook already. Otherwise, he's trying diligently to edit this portion out, but probably not capable of doing it. So we'll see. Mike, we hope that you feel better, and we're sorry that you don't feel good. Uh, we'll hope to catch you on the next one. But welcome in. We got four guys still, so we're – Still doing all right. I don't think have we ever done an episode with three of us? Yeah, that's the how OG was three of us, wasn't it? It was just you, me, and Ben, right? Or you, me, and Matt. No, you, me, and Mike. Wow, there we go. Mike, 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 and Ben. Yep. Yeah, Mike, Mike, and Ben. Nice. All right. Well, <laughs> welcome into God's Word during exile. Uh, thank you. Also, we're gonna do a little shout out. Let me just find um we got an email this past week and yes. it was wonderful. So uh, shout out to Adam uh, for that very nice email um, that we did not have to forward to Jason Goodham, but uh, it was a great email. So if you'd like, keep the spirits, uh, keep the spirits, keep the spirits high. There we go. Uh, keep the spirits high and continue to send those emails to us because they're really spurring us on, man. I can't even express how excited I get when I look into the emails and I actually see one. It's a great day. So thank you, Adam, for doing that for us. Uh, Mike Hussey is going to send you a special gift, but hopefully it's not the gift that he's dealing with today, which is a stomach bug. Oh, yeah. All right. So that's Ben. Uh, this is Jason right here. This is Matt right here. We're God's word during exile. We're happy that you're here. We're going to be studying Revelation 20. Um, we might get through the whole chapter today, and if we do, we're going to blame it on Mike Hussey, because he's the one who's holding us back. But we probably shouldn't make fun of him too much, because he's not here to really, I don't even know what the word is, say something on his behalf. I don't know what that word is. Yeah. It's something. All right, Defend let's just himself? go to prayer. Um, <laughs> Matt, you want to open us in prayer? Let's do that. All right, cool. All right, Lord, we thank you so much for... Uh, bringing us together once again to hear from your word. And we know that your word is living and active and that it accomplishes things uh, wherever it is read and heard. And uh, that is because of uh, it, it coming from you and coming with your Holy Spirit and his power. And so we just pray that you'd be at work in us to lead us to repentance and faith, that we might be comforted and blessed by this study of Revelation. Uh, we know that you promised that in the first chapter, that all who read this will be blessed. So we trust that that's going to be true in us today. And, uh, and so give us wisdom and discernment as we look into these things and also be with uh, Pastor Mike Hussey and I pray that he'd feel better. Anybody else out there who's uh, not doing well, Lord, be with them as well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Ben, All right. Uh, you're up, and uh, you're going to read Revelation 20 for us. All right. 
Revelation 20, uh, and I'm reading from the English Standard Version. St. John writes, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. I Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books are opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I had to get it for Mike. Good job. Thank you. Ben, I'm so excited for you to lead this study, Ben. Really? Yeah, I'm so excited. <laughs> okay. It's going to be great. <laughs> well, I think we got to verse three for the most part last time yeah i don't think we talked um too much about the being released for a little while but that's uh something that kind of we can maybe tie in here uh for this latter half sure what do we do with that why are we ever told why Satan must be released. Why not just kept in chains and then judged immediately? Uh, this is the closest evidence that I find uh, for a, a good faith argument that the things right before judgment day are going to intensify. Uh, it's, you know, this is kind of along the lines of in, interpreting uh a separate Armageddon battle. I think we talked a little bit last week about what to do with the problem of evil as Jesus is physically reigning 
on earth if you believe in a literal millennium um mm -hmm. One of my principles as an interpreter and teacher of Revelation is always that the, the most common theme we find in the New Testament about Christ's return is that it happens unexpectedly. Mm -hmm. So I am inclined to be suspicious of any sort of things that need to happen before Jesus returns, mm -hmm. uh, which is why... I don't think scripture definitively presents for us a big A antichrist figure that has to arrive on the scene um, and along those lines. But I think there can be a case made here to, to say that, you know, this, this probably builds into the concept that things are going to get worse and not better, and, and that there will probably be an intensifying of evil before Christ's return. Uh, I think we can make that conclusion without getting too far along the lines of waiting for something to happen before Jesus comes back. Um, yeah, and just to, to follow up on that, I'd say what we don't want to do is we don't want to spend time and energy trying to figure out if, like, if the time that we're in is the intensified time or or if there's a time coming that will be worse than this because we don't have any way to to objectively or definitively uh, determine that. And so um, it's kind of, it's quite fruitless to try because a lot of times, you know, you hear people say, well, you know, things are worse than they've ever been. Well, that's not, probably not true. Um, you know, and maybe, maybe in certain ways, but not entirely, you know, the history ebbs and, and, and ebbs and flows. We have high points and we have low points and so on and so forth. And so, you know, and our tendency is to think it seems like that we're always living in the worst of times, or there are other that might say, well, I can imagine it being much worse than this, but we just want to recognize that all of that is just purely speculation on our part. We, we are not given to try to determine if this is the, the last, you know, phase of intensity before Christ returns, or if there's another one coming, we don't, we don't know that. So we live every day with the expectation that Christ comes at any time. And we go about the work that God has commissioned his church to do. And as far as, you know, the release of Satan and when that happens and all of that, that's in God's hands. He has not revealed those kinds of details uh, to us. And so we don't want to, we don't want to jump into the speculative part. So if the, if I could jump in with a follow-up question and clarify, if the point of this statement isn't to help us time the end and to realize that it's, you know, here or that it's within this time period or something, uh, what's the purpose of, of God sharing this detail with us? The, the purpose... I... I don't think you can kind of <clears throat> artificially disconnect what happens at the end of verse three with what's going on in verse four. And, and um, I think often where the church goes off base on, on some of these more fantastical end times prophecies in scripture is that we lose sight of the entire purpose of what's going on. Like, like Ben says, we want to know where we're at right now. We want to analyze, you know, if you spend any amount of time on some of the darker corners of the internet right now, people are going nuts about what's going on with Russia and Ukraine because of how they were taught 
the end times lays itself out according to geopolitical events. You know, I like, like quite literally people are kind of waiting for Nikolai Carpathia to rise up in the Eastern Europe and, and, and make something happen. Uh, we move from the binding and or loosing of Satan in verse three to a picture of the church in verse four. And uh, it's, it's almost matter of fact. It, 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 it's, it's to use the, the, it's a nothing burger that we just move on from Satan being released to, oh, here's the church. It, I think there's just a little subtle, even while he's released, Satan's a defeated foe. You know, it's, it, it's not to kind of not take Satan seriously, but it's, it's a message to not panic. And, and the church of the 20th and 21st century has taken the call in scripture to be watchful as a call to know everything we can about the chronology of the end times events and not as a call to be ready for Jesus to return. That might be a little too vague for some people's taste, but that's always what I've done with this phrase. It, it, it's dropped right at the end of who Satan is, what he's doing. Then we immediately go to the church, and I hear echoes of Matthew 16 in my ear, and the gates of hell will never prevail against the church. That, that's what I hear and see in this transition. Yeah. So, and, um, and okay. Oh, sorry. I was just going to say, can I ask a quick question? Do you guys think that this goes hand in hand with, you know, when we actually see Satan being defeated, either cast down and how there's really no war? It just kind of is like, yep, here it is. God wins. He's always he's going to be the victor. He always is. I mean, there's no like there's we don't really see a, a hardcore battle or anything like that. Um, but we just see that God is once again, the victor. And I feel like that's what we kind of see here too. It's like, it's over, it's done with, it's not a big deal. Satan's already been defeated. Here it is. Do you guys think that that works hand in hand together? I think it's a good way to look at it. Yeah. It's just like, you know, before when we were at the battle of Armageddon, it was like, boom, done. (laughs) (laughs) Um, yeah, and I just think that goes back to Jason. That's something that you've mentioned a number of times. Like, if your if your understanding of the end times causes you to to panic and to be in terror and fear and not focused on on Christ and the the comfort and redemption that He brings, you're doing it wrong. And so, um, <clears throat> I think a lot of times this release of Satan, like people tend to be afraid of that. Like they're just you know like. I don't know. It seems to stir up a lot of a lot of fear, you know, when we always want to remember, just as Mike, you pointed out too, is like we know who who wins. We know that there's no contest between God and Satan. Um, I mean, Jesus says that, you know, he or is it St. Peter says this then in in and John too in, in Revelation that you know the the wrath of Satan is fierce because he knows his time is short, but but he's also he just kind of wanders around like a like a roaring lion, right? Like he's um, he's active, yes, but he's not all powerful, right? And so um, you know, and so the call, you know, again to the to the church and to the Christian is to endure, to stand firm, 
Um, not because, you know, we have any abilities in ourselves to overcome the devil, but, but the way that he would get to us is through attacking our faith through unbelief and, and deceit. And so, and so our standing firm is holding fast to the truth of God's word, holding fast to the promises of Christ. And, and when we do that, you know, like there is, there's nothing that Satan can do to us that will harm us eternally. The, the most that he could do, um, is kill our bodies. And then Jesus comes back, we're raised from the dead, we get our bodies back. So what did we really lose? Right? So, you know, that's, and that's a continual call throughout the book of Revelation is for the endurance of the saints, for, for the church to see the end, right? That Satan is defeated, that God wins. There's no question about that. There's no contest. And so we can look at all of the, the evil in the world and the activity of, you know, the devil and his demons. And, and we can say, it's just a little while, you know, um, all of it, God will bring justice for all of that. He will judge the devil and all those who are evil. And we are simply called to endure and remain steadfast in the word of God. And so we are not called to fear, um, but to trust and hold fast to God's word. The, the Christian response to the news that Satan is on the loose here in Revelation 20 should really simply be what of it? So Satan's not a threat to us. And, and it, it's the kind of same thing. If you put an angry Rottweiler on a leash, the Rottweiler is not a threat to you unless you play too close to the teeth. Uh, Satan's a defeated foe. And, and if some would say, well, he's on the loose, uh, he can, you know, take others with him, deceive others. Well, that's the call of evangelism throughout the scriptures. If you're worried about Satan deceiving others and Satan having freedom to deceive others, it's a call to the church to preach the gospel. Because even here in Revelation, the gospel is the answer to being deceived eternally and punished in hell. And so you look at Satan, after that he must be released for a little bit. Okay, church, preach the gospel. Yep. And and uh, probably don't, you know, be ready for deceptive deceiving uh teachings and things that are not only going to um try to trick us but they're going to be trying to trick the world and all the more reason again to preach the truth be, be ready for false teachings tempting teachings be ready to be labeled the enemy you know the, I, I think one of the big failures of the church of the modern day is how many people are surprised that people don't like christians you know the church yeah. Uh, the modern church seems to be totally surprised when we're persecuted and we don't, we shouldn't get that sense in the new Testament. And just so that we're connecting this for our listeners, um, especially if you don't have this in front of you, some of what we're looking at here is that last week we talked about that he was, that Satan was bound and, and it says so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. And and then later here, you know, he, after the thousand years, it says he's released for a little while, jumping down to verses seven and following says that after the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations. And so, um, you know, this period of the millennium then is, is when he is on that leash is kind of how we're describing it, right? And, and that's restricting how much he's able to deceive people. Um, 
and so the this time of intensifying at the end would then be specifically here the emphasis is on uh deception that will be how he's marked um at the end with this intensifying um uh fight against god and his people and there at, in those verses later like eight and nine he's he's uh deceiving the nations to raise up an army um to go and an attack god's people and god and so it's like yeah gearing up for that final fight right the thief comes to steal kill and destroy those that's the end game for satan it was the end game when jesus walked to the earth and it's been the end game and during the entire history of the church and it will be so at the end whenever that might be every everything satan is bent on doing is to get a person either to walk away from the faith or not allow a person to come into the faith and the, the amount of times that Jesus tells us about that in scripture should be good enough to know that whatever Satan can do, God, Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, the triune God, and the word of God is more powerful than the tools that Satan has at his disposal. Is it worth asking the question, why would God let him out? It's worth asking the question. I don't know. We have a definitive answer. I mean, it's, it's one of those things where God, in his wisdom, has chosen to allow this to happen because in the end, he is glorified. Hmm. You know, we, we can wade into the weeds only so far before we are either inventing answers that aren't in Scripture or we're speaking for God words that he has not said. Hmm. Yep. You know, that, that does remind me, um, Jason, at the end of the last episode, you gave our listeners a few questions. And I just want to point out that nobody has commented or sent me emails about those questions. But you can, if you would like to, by sending it to God's Word during exile at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Um, or if you'd like to just post them in the comments below, too, you could do that. And if you have no clue what we're talking about, you just need to go back and listen to the last episode. It was right at the tail end of last week's episode. All right, Ben, take us into verse four. All right, finally on verse four. Let's go. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so John writes in, in the first part of verse four, he says, Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Um Oh, I'll just read the whole verse and we'll work through it. Uh, also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So what's John talking about? What are these thrones and who, who is it that has the authority to judge that sits on these thrones? Can, can we recap here what the then I saw would mean here so that we're putting this in place properly if we can? Uh, what the then I saw is, is not a chronology, but John is just speaking about what he saw next. So 
uh, a stronger chronological marker in Revelation is when John says, after this, which gives us a time referent. Then I saw, this is him saying, this is the next thing in the vision that I saw. It may or be not, may not be with reference to time. So I, part of the reason this might be confusing then is if we were taking this chronological, we just heard in verse three that the thousand years were ended. And then now we see this. Um, and then it says, then they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. You've heard about first millennium, but have you heard about second millennium? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> or elevensies. Elevensies. <laughs> Uh, yeah this is it's the problem with taking things super literally right it's mm -hmm. sooner or later if you are committed to a literalistic interpret interpretation of revelation you're going to play it fast and loose with your own principles because you have to and then it's a matter of of a la carte picking and choosing what you want to be a literal historical event and what you want to be of symbolic significance my, my whole thing is, let's just be honest about that from the get-go, instead of throwing one school of interpretation under the bus while claiming that you are much, so much more superior for trying to do something else when you're really doing the same thing. Right? So the second thousand years, I'm really glad you mentioned that because that pops up nicely in here. The other thing is, the, you know, I haven't heard a single interpreter of Revelation say that only those who are beheaded get the honor in, in the throne room of God. That, that would be an oddly specific and small group of people. Mm -hmm. you know, most people I know would say, well, this is talking about the martyrs or something else, but not all martyrs have been beheaded. Right. So yeah, it, it's good to point out uh, the, the second millennium, the, you know, we, we've obviously more or less reset the timeline here. This isn't a chronology. This isn't a, a literal history making uh, by John. This isn't also even the first time we've seen the thrones in Revelation. Thrones go all the way back to the end of when the letters is what chapter four, chapter five, we see the throne room of God and the thrones. And, and, and uh, I didn't take time to look this up today. So if I commit heresy, someone can email Mike at God's word during exile at gmail.com. Uh, but you have the, the 12 elders and the 12 apostles, right? You have the 12, the 12 and 12 sitting around the throne room of God with God in the center. Uh, the, the best way to interpret that, this is talking about the authority of scripture to rule over the church. Especially when you've got the 12 and 12. Now, we, we don't have the number of thrones given to us here. We don't know if that's in view. All we have to do is go to another throne room to find that. But the 12 and 12 would be uh, either the 12 tribes of Jacob in the Old Testament, or some people try to make it the 12 prophets or whatever, and the 12 apostles of the New Testament. If you start importing the rest of Scripture into Revelation, which you should be doing all of the time anyway, suddenly you get to Ephesians 2, where you find out that our entire faith is built on the Old Testament and the New Testament, Christ Jesus being the cornerstone. What we have being painted for us here in chapter 4 is a picture of the church built on the authority of Scripture, again, of which Satan is not a threat. 
Yeah, and uh, if it seems strange, or maybe someone asks, like, you know, in what in what way do you, you know the saints of God judge um, by scripture? You know, I think right. I think we can we can think of passages like Matthew sixteen and John twenty. Right, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you withhold sins. Uh, forgiveness from anyone it is withheld right and so what what we are doing is judging according to the word of god right law and gospel that binds and forgives right and so that is a carrying out of a judgment i mean that is god's judgment concerning sin right Um, and it's not saying anything that's from us or from our opinion it's the authority of god's word showing how to discern on these issues but then saying only what god has said right yeah and and jesus you know jesus breathes on the on the apostles right like it's his authority but he says go now and speak in my stead right and and so as long as we are yes speaking according to the, uh, the word of god rightly right you know we we do speak those words of judgment and forgiveness uh, in the stead and by the command of Christ, we might say. So, yes. Um, so that is, so that's the way in which um, the church, the saints judge according to scripture, according to God's words of, of law and gospel. Right. Yeah. And uh, it creates but, a really interesting picture of the church. And so I'll jump in here. Uh, this is my own personal private and unique heresy that I've, I've built into my interpretation of verse four. Uh, uh, whenever I come up with one of these, I always tell people who listen to me, take it with a grain of salt. Uh, if you think it's a good interpretation, it probably means that I have subconsciously ripped it off from someone who's smarter and more faithful than I am. And if it's bad, totally hold me you know, accountable for it. But you got this picture specifically of the souls who had been beheaded for the testimony of Christ. Right? Again, an oddly specific group, considering I don't know that anyone in the Old Testament era was beheaded for being faithful. I, I, the closest you can get uh, is probably if you take the legend of the prophet Isaiah being sawn in two. I mean, some part of his body was beheaded, but it was not quite with a great amount of accuracy. Uh, but uh, John the Baptist? Yeah, John the Baptist is the only one, right? And St. Paul, as far as we know from church but, tradition. Yeah, church tradition, and definitely not scriptural tradition. Yeah. So here we go. Uh, in scripture, the consistent picture of the church, especially in the epistles, is with Christ Jesus as the head of a body. And so this picture of the church is one where all of the saints in the church are counted as martyrs, because the root word of martyr is not someone who's been killed for their faith, but someone who gives testimony to their faith. Martyr in Greek means witness. So this is not only a picture of the church as a whole in the book of Revelation, but a promise of the church suffering because of Christ, but received into the throne room of God also because of Christ, because in the throne room of God, that's where we find our head. That's where Christ is at the right hand of God. Not as a locale, but again, as a, uh, as authority, the right hand of God isn't a zip code, but it's speaking of Christ's power and position, which means 
our authority to judge flows from the word and from the authority of Christ in the church. What do you think about that, Jeff? <laughs> mind blown, Jeff. <laughs> that is a mind blower. So, so um, you know, that, that makes me think back then to um, Revelation 6, where we've got the martyrs under the altar, the fifth seal has been opened and the the martyrs are under the altar praying oh, sovereign lord you know how long until you bring vengeance and justice um and then the answer is you know not until all those who have died um all the number of those who will die you know for uh i forget the phrase but you know until that final number of martyrs is brought in, basically, until um, the last one of them dies, uh, that's how long the Lord is withholding the final judgment. So would, would you tie that into this in interpretation too? Because one of the questions I had with that in Bible study was, is this only the martyrs, those who have been actually killed for their faith, or is this the whole church, or is this a representative group of the whole church? What's going on with that? I think this is a prophetic both and. I, I think we are permitted in Scripture to give honor to those who die for their faith. You know, the John the Baptists, the Jameses, uh, the Stephens, you know, those who die for their faith. I, I, I think there's a way we do it, but we have, to, we have to avoid that Roman Catholic tendency of creating a separate class of Christian, because that's not the idea here. My whole idea behind this is we are far too narrow with our interpretations in Revelation. And if we're going to take the martyr imagery and look at it with the church, guess what? Everyone's baptism is a martyrdom. You are put to death for your faith in Christ. And you are risen, raised again with Christ. Uh, everyone's Christian vocation is a martyrdom because we are called for the sake of Christ to bear our crosses for our neighbor. Uh, you look at the way this imagery is used in the New Testament, uh, right away in the early church, Acts 3 or 5, I forget which one, when, when the apostles are preaching in the temple and they're beaten by the Sanhedrin and told to shut up, they leave the temple praising God because they were considered worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. My whole thing in this, whether my specifics are on or not, and I tend to think there's something to interpreting it this way, is uh, we ought to not try to create a separate class of Christians when what this verse very well might be doing is describing the multifaceted Christian life of suffering and witness. You're already a martyr for Christ because you've been baptized, and you're already a martyr for Christ because, because you have been called to sacrificially love your neighbor because everything you need for life and salvation is in Christ. Yeah, and, and uh, picking up to just, just to say again what uh, you had said earlier, the, the term martyr has come to mean something more specific to us. Uh, throughout the history of the church, 
but as it's being written in the New Testament, it means witness. So anyone who bears witness or testimony to Christ is a martyr. So that would be all Christians are called to martyrdom, to witness and to testify. And also, uh, John also connects here uh, those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. And that would be all Christians. All Christian, because (laughs) the mark of the beast is the counterfeit baptism of Revelation 13. And the consistent theme when you see good and evil struggling in Revelation is that Satan and the two beasts use the tactics of counterfeit Christianity to mimic the church and lead people astray. Jason, since you just did two weeks of Sunday school on this, can Christians, you know, accidentally receive such mark of the beast? <laughs> no. You, you, again, I, I will say this as obnoxiously as possible just to drive home the point. As it stands right now, you could literally go to a local tattoo parlor and, and get a barcode tattooed on your wrist and a 666 tattooed between your eyes and still not have the mark of the beast. Now, I don't recommend anyone do that because that's really towing the line of blasphemy pretty closely. But the point is, this isn't just some random thing that that can happen to any Christian at any time because that is completely inconsistent with the way the faith is presented throughout the rest of scripture. The mark of the beast as it stands in Revelation 13, 18 is intended to be the branding of slavery to sin which in and of itself is the definition of unbelief. Just, just go to John's writing in the Gospel of John, where in John 6, a very popular Reformation Sunday passage, or no, John 8, excuse me, John 8, anyone who commits a sin is a slave to sin. And without repentance and without forgiveness, we are slaves to sin. That's what the mark of the beast is referring to. And Christian baptism with its literal and spiritual sign on the cross and sign sign of the cross on the forehead, sign of the cross on the breast is what identifies us as the children of God rather than the children of Satan. So it's a matter of faith and it's a matter of the counterfaith tactics of Satan and the two beasts. And is there um Oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to make uh, one connection. I hope I'm not derailing what you're going to say here, Ben, but I was just thinking about uh, in Deuteronomy, the, the call to bind the word of God on your forehead and on your wrist. Yes, and I think similar, a similar idea there, a, a Christian, a believer is marked by, by trusting in the word of God and whether you symbolically, you know, uh, uh, or actually physically bind, you know, something onto your wrist and forehead, or just really what it means, believing it, having it in your heart and in your mind, and it's a part of your life and who you are, because you're a believer, you trust the word of God. That's what it is to bind that like that in your life, have it on your doorposts is where you come in and where you go out. It's a part of your life. You trust it. Uh, That's what a believer is. So that, that would be the opposite then of the mark of the beast, which is unbelief, rejection of that, replacing that with anything else throughout your life. Is am I on the right track with this? Yeah, it's in the end, what we what we rest upon is that Christians are people of the word of God. That that, that Christians are people of the truth. And the tactics of Satan are to deceive. So that Jesus says to the Pharisees, 
who think that they're on God's team and rather God should be thanking them for being on his team. Jesus says, you are of your father, the devil. And he has been lying and murdering from the beginning. Yeah, it brings you back to the, basically like the seed of the serpent and the seed <clears throat> of the woman. Right? Yep. Um, and also with this, like, you know, again, a lot of times I think we just get a lot of bad imagery when we, when we read it in a, in a literalistic way, like, cause the, I, the, the thought is like something that, you know, you know, the, this beast or whatever is giving the, the mark. Right. But, but what we're saying is that everyone uh, is who is conceived in the natural way. Right. Everyone is born in sin with this mark, right? We are born in unbelief and rebellion against God, right? And what, and what God does in Christ when he, when he saves us and converts us and forgives our sins is he takes away the mark of the beast of unbelief and he gives us his mark in holy baptism. And so what I want to drive home with this, it's not as if the mark of the beast is a permanent thing. It doesn't have to be, right? It is something that is able to be overcome by the gospel until Jesus returns. When he comes back, then, then there's, there's no more opportunity for repentance. Those who are marked are marked, but in that way, but, um, but in this time uh, of grace, in this time where uh, our Lord delays in returning uh, those that, you know, the unbeliever has that mark of the beast, but it doesn't have to stay that way. And that is one of the reasons why, you know, there's urgency in, in evangelism and preaching the gospel, because they can have that mark removed and replaced with, with God's name, God's mark in holy baptism and, and the righteousness of Christ and all that. They don't have to remain under the, the power and tyranny of the devil, right? And that's what, you know, Jesus came to do, to destroy his works. And the gospel goes out to set people free, as Jason, you were talking about before, set them free from being slaves to sin and bring them into be slaves of righteousness, which is not a, a tyrannical slavery, right? And so this is the whole point, right, that, that Luther talks about Jesus being a Lord. He comes and rescues us from the power of the devil, from being under, you know, his tyranny and affliction, and he makes us his own, and he sets us free from, from slavery to sin, death, and the devil. And so, um, so that's what's going on. When we're preaching the gospel, you know, it's it's uh, taking those people who are marked by the beast by simply being born in, in unbelief and sin and, you know, praying that God through his, through his word and his, and his spirit there through that proclaimed gospel would, would mark them as his own wash that mark of unbelief off and replace it with the righteousness of Christ in his name and his baptism, his mark upon us. So Shout out to the best Christmas carol ever written, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. That is so good. Yep, my favorite Dude, Christmas that, carol. That's literally <clears throat> verse four in a nutshell right there. Yeah. Well, in, in Ben, you brought up two really good points that are useful in understanding this chapter in Revelation. Uh, the first, you talked about, you know, when we confess Jesus as Lord, if you jump to the large catechism and the explanation of the second article of the creed where where Luther explains that to have a redeemer is to have a Lord, that's the same terminology uh, for, for Jesus. One of the key moves Luther makes in the large catechism is that Satan 
isn't a competing Lord to God. That either you have a Lord or you don't. It's not a matter of, you, you know, uh, of Satan being an equal competing power to God or not. And, and that helps us understand the work of Satan here and well, in, in several of the last chapters of Revelation. But, but the other thing, when we're talking about the mark of baptism versus the mark of the beast, I think why so much of the modern American church struggles with this concept is that we always want to view how we stand before God on a sliding scale of piety, where we're either closer to God or we're farther away from God based on our performance. And in which case, there would seem to be this kind of opportunity to accidentally slip off the edge of the table kind of a thing. But, you know, you said when we're born, we're, we come into this world essentially with the mark of the beast that is then washed away in baptism. Uh, you are not either more or less of a Christian, a committed Christian or a backsliding Christian or however you want to qualify it based on how you perform before God. There's only two words that scripture has ever given us to classify our relationship with God. We're either a child of wrath or we're a child of reconciliation. And, and there's never graduated stages. If you understand it in those terms, and, and it kind of the first two or three chapters of Romans spell it out in that same way. If you understand that at any time in your life, you're either a child of wrath or you're a child of reconciliation, depending on if you've received the blood of Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, then the mark of the beast and the seal of God on those who are his makes perfect sense. Because you're not always hopping across the line back and forth based on where you stand. Did I do my devotions today? Uh, have I been to church in the last three weeks? Uh, did I uh, punch someone in the face because I was angry at them? Stuff like that. Uh, we, we, we don't let our performance build or color how God sees us. Yeah, and uh, to drive home some of that a little bit more too, as we think about, yeah, just what you say, how Luther purposefully does not speak of Satan as a as a lord or or king or owner. So again, Satan likes to deceive, right? So so even this mark where he he pretends like he has power over people or like he owns people. Right. So we don't so we don't want to think about, oh, if if you have the mark of the beast, you belong to Satan in the same way that if you have God's mark, you belong to God. So so this is just reinforcing what you're saying, Jason. It's not two competing lords. But um, because, you know, Satan is under the same condemnation as all unbelievers who refuse to to repent. Right. And so, you know. And so it just seems like it's just, you know, it's just this massive, you know, deceptive scheme where Satan likes to make people think that he owns them and that he's so much more powerful and all this. But, but he is powerless against the power of God to, to, you know, like, it's not like, oh, I marked this person, God, you can't have them. You know, it's like God and be like, oh, there we go. I saved this person. Not yours, Satan. None of these are yours. You're a created being you're going to be judged. You like to pretend like you own all of these things. It's like Satan coming to Jesus and saying, oh, I'll give all this stuff to you. It's not really mine, but I'll give it to you anyway. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And so it's the same kind of, kind of thing. Like Satan likes to deceive and make himself look like he is God. And like he owns people. It's like he doesn't own anyone. He is, you know, and 
um, yes, he has the power to to afflict and to, you know, it's not like he's completely powerless, but he has no ability to hold on to uh, an unbeliever when when God comes with his powerful word and saves a person. Like, you know, um, so, you know, like we have that mystery where where man in his sinfulness can can resist that gracious call of God. But that's not the devil made me resist. You know, that's we leave that you know, where scripture does squarely with the responsibility of man. And there's a mystery there, but it's not like Satan is like, oh, these are mine. And, and God can't have any of, of these like, haha, I marked this person. God, you can't have that person. I win. You know, it's nothing like that. He'd like us to think that, but um, so just, we just want to remember to that, that all of Satan's activity is bound up in deception. Like this is what he does. Right. Are you so, comparing but, Satan to a dog that goes around marking property and then other dogs just go around and mark over that property? Um, that's an interesting illustration. <laughs> no uh, comment at this time. <laughs> uh, so, okay. Could, could I jump in with a passage that I've been thinking about as you guys have been talking about this that seems really to connect well, uh, the book of Hosea, at the beginning, you've got these children being born to this unfaithful woman. They're being born in sin, and God tells Hosea to name them Lo-Ami and Lo-Ruhamah, not my people, and you have not received mercy. But then later, God comes in and renames them and calls them my people, and you have received mercy. And it seems to me that's kind of what's happening here when we talk about baptism and God claiming us as his own and giving us his mercy and giving us this identity as a redeemed, a forgiven person who belongs to him, lives in his kingdom, I think it's a, a wonderful picture of, of what God does with us as he gives us his mark and his name. And um, I think it's absolutely beautiful. And I don't know if uh, one more thought that I had with, with this is that with your, with your uh, theory or your uh, interpretation here, Jason, <laughs> I mean, we're, we talk about the millennium being the time when Christ you know, between his comings, right? When he leaves and then when he comes back. And if he is our head, we've lost our head when he ascended. And when he comes back, he comes back for us. And I, I don't mean to diminish the giving of the Holy Spirit that is with us in the meantime, but that picture seems to kind of make sense with the rest of what we're kind of saying yeah. here. Just as, long as, just as long as we don't push it too far. Right. But there, Curious yeah, in, in my mind, there's all sorts of images that come in. And, and if you want to play the ascension image, which I, I think is fair, then, then it means we are reunited with our head either in death when we go to heaven or when we are doing heavenly things like the divine service and holy communion and, and all of you know, the sacraments. Again, we don't want to push it too far as if this mm. is the specific interpretation of what's going on. But yeah. uh, for me, in, in reading Revelation, teaching Revelation, doing these things, what, what a, a big picture image like this does is it keeps me from being too narrow-minded and specific when we get into these passages that are highly controversial. You know, 
I don't think that martyrs as conceived of in the 21st century church are out of the picture here. This is clearly talking about people who have specifically died for the faith. But what I think is that as far as people who have died for the faith, there are spiritual principles behind the physical. Did you guys lose Jason there for a second? Yeah, yeah you guys all froze on mine. It says my, my internet connection is unstable. Could you could you repeat the last couple sentences you said there, Jason? Yeah, about I, the spiritual. I, that's yeah. where I lost you. So, so the those who have died in the faith would be uh, the the physical reality of what this verse is presenting to us, right? But there are spiritual realities behind that physical rea- reality that apply to the whole church, and and that's what we ought to be aware of, and it keeps us from unnecessarily forming a timeline or finding specific reference to prophecies that are intended and given to the church to speak generic and big truths. Yeah, the, just to clarify, the, the reason why I said we don't want to push it too far is we just don't want to make it seem like Jesus is located somewhere up there and not present with it. That, that was it. Yep. Just yep. That. Yeah, because there's that, you know, when... And, and these these two things, when you're using a metaphor or a parable, or right, they have limitations, right? When there's a picture, they always have their limitations. We've got to understand that. <clears throat> and the the wonderful truth is that even though, you know, it might sometimes feel like God is so far away, and we're really disconnected from Him and everything too, you know, that He is here with us, and we get that foretaste of that that time at the marriage supper of the lamb every time we have the lord's supper and all of that and yeah so we don't want to twist up all the other well-established theologies we know from or doctrines we have from the scriptures but it's an interesting picture and i think it's it's good to see that you know, it's not just limited to a couple people, the, these principles, because I am always troubled by interpretations of revelation that only would matter to a couple people sometime in the future. And, and I think this sort of, uh, as uh, Dr. Haugen says, uh, sanctified speculation can sometimes be a little bit helpful. I hope I'm not uh, misusing his phrase. I would hate to <laughs> speak wrongly for him, but um. uh, it's you know the, my big overarching principle for interpreting the whole of Revelation is simply this: if any time you understand Revelation and it robs some other part of the church, either at a different time or a different location, from understanding Revelation, you're doing it wrong. So if you're only capable to see of what's happening in Revelation in a particularly 21st century American context, then you're off base. Because that means that uh, a Chinese Christian or an African Christian right now, there's no meaning of the book for it. Or it, it robs people in 6th century Italy or 10th century uh, Western Russia or, or at any place at any time in the church. It robs them of the gift of God's word applying to the church at all times. And that's what we're trying to avoid. There's some interesting things for us to think about with those who have been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus. 
really interesting things. Hmm. But that should cause us to both think about those who have died in the faith, those who have been killed for their faith, but it also should cause us to think in broader strokes about the realities that apply to the whole church. Um, so we're coming close on, on time, but one verse, one last sentence of verse four. So it says they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So what's going, what's going on here? The, here. the coming to life and the reigning I'll, I'll help with that in in just a second. Give me a second here. I'll make sure we get this. Was <laughs> oh, there some artwork happening now yeah. that's yeah. going to help us out? Okay, we need uh, Mike Natal to describe this. Oh, okay. okay. I, oh, okay, it's wait, just a word. <laughs> that, wait, wait. Is this what Wordle's what like? I haven't played Wordle yet. But is that yeah. is this the Wordle answer for tonight? It's that a Wordle. The, it's the seven uh, letter version of Wordle instead of the five letter. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so baptism I, 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 is what yeah, that says I, I forget my i forget my image is reversed on here so it, you know it said Masitpab uh for some people <laughs> uh, but uh, they came to life and raised reigned with christ again mm-hmm. unless you're really having fun with locating different resurrections at different times the first time we are raised from the dead, the first time we come to life is as we are baptized. Mm-hmm. It, it, the direct connection for us in scripture is Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive. That sure sounds like what verse 4 is talking about here. And also like Romans 6, right? We were buried with Christ, raised to new life. Um, yeah, so there's no, no need to try to find a, you know, a second physical resurrection, right? Because some would, you know, because that's how some, you know, I take this, oh, that, that there's a, you know, initial resurrection at, the beginning of the thousand years and a second one at the end, but, but this language of, of coming to life, especially tied into, you know, like what we were just talking about with the mark of, of God, you know, those who do not have the mark of the beast and so on and so forth. It fits very well with baptismal language, right? Because scripture over and over again, describes baptism. Like this is the new birth, right? This is resurrection from death, right? You know, so, so yeah, we, you know, even though we're physically alive, you know, we're spiritually dead. It's just as I'm in Ephesians 2. But in holy baptism, God raises us to new life. This is, this is very much bound up and tied together in, in scripture. So, so we should, we should learn to associate baptism and resurrection, right? Like this is, this is what's happening. You know, my, when was I born anew? In holy baptism. When was I raised to new life from spiritual death? When I was baptized. Right. So we tie these two things together. Baptism, spiritual life. Baptism, resurrection from death. Baptism pointing us ahead to the physical resurrection as well. You know, we as we uh, were buried with Christ and raised to new life uh, spiritually in this present age. So also then physically in the age to come. And so in Holy Baptism, as well as Holy Communion, we have the 
you know, the eschaton, the new age, breaking into the present age, right? As we receive those those benefits and gifts of God and resurrection, forgiveness of sins, life and, and salvation, all of that comes to us present now. So it fits very well with um, the language of coming to life. And then in that same passage, I believe, Jason, in Ephesians 2, um, St. Paul will talk about how Christ has seated us in the heavenly places. And so we have the language also of reigning with and the throne Christ. room of God. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And the disarming of the, the powers and authorities, right? The devil, he's disarmed the strong man. And, and, the, and this is living on earth in the victory of Christ. And he won through his death and resurrection and, and even ascension to the right hand of the father. Right. And so, um, and yet he's still present with us through his spirit and through his word here. Right. Uh, but he's reigning with the church, even despite all of how it looks like we often look defeated, but we feel like we're losing sometimes, but this is Christ reigning in the church in, you know, after his victory. And, uh, and so a powerful and I think encouraging word for us. So when we don't feel like we're reigning, uh, we can be reminded here that Christ has won and he's, he's here with us. He's established us. And it's, if, if you stop and if you allow for the possibility the consistency of biblical imagery and b- biblical themes is absolutely stunning as it comes out in Revelation. As long as you're not going into a study on the book of Revelation thinking this is a brand new kind of scripture, a unique part of scripture, you're going to see all the way from Genesis to Jude, the themes that Revelation talks about, you're going to see it over and over and over again. And you're not even going to be forcing the issue. Uh, It's going to be laid out for you right on the pages of Scripture. Yeah, lots of connections being made today. And Jason, thanks for making a lot of those connections for us. And even sharing your heresy that doesn't really seem too far off. So thank you for that. (laughs) Guys, if you uh, are enjoying Jason and you want a little bit more of him, which who doesn't, you can check him out on uh, Being Lutheran. Uh, He's got his own podcast with uh, another group of guys, too. Um, Not as good looking as our guys, but still, you know... we it's, keep things audio awesome only there. at the Being Lutheran podcast. <laughs> Faces for radio, right? Yep. <laughs> Unlike oh, <yeah>. us. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All right, guys, well, let me close this in We did one Jason, verse. Thank you. Oh, one what's verse. up, Ben? We did one verse today. Hey. Oh, man. So, therefore, it's not Mike Hussey's fault, guys. <laughs> this is just the way we process through scripture. So, All right, who do we want to not know. have on next week to see if they're the problem? <laughs> yeah, Mike, you talk too much. <laughs> Dude, that's what I'm told all the time. All right, let me close this in prayer. Uh, gracious Lord, I just thank you for today. I thank you for the... Um, different ways that you brought things together and Lord relating it to our baptism um, where you, where we crossed over from death to life, which is something that you did in our lives. And so Lord, we just thank you for that truth. Help us to just constantly be reminded of that. 
And Lord, I just thank you for the different connections that we made today and how uh, your word, even while we are going uh, at a slower pace, that there are so many things to talk about, so many different things uh, in order to draw and glean from different passages of scripture. And so Lord, just continue to encourage us and our listeners to uh, study scripture and use scripture as the basis for our interpretation of anything as we move forward. And so, Lord, I thank you for these men who gave up their time in order to study. I thank you for our listeners who are studying along with us. And Lord, may you just be glorified in this situation. We pray for Mike, too, that you would give him a speedy recovery so that he can be back uh, to full strength. We lift this up to you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, y'all. See ya. Oh, baptism. There it is.